0: Hey, hey, this is Chase Masters, Masterson, host of Disco Nights, inviting you to join us every Sunday as the disco party continues with our fabulous guests. Like us. Like us. Like you. And you, our audience, so we'll see you here next Sunday night. Bring your disco shoes.
1: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a Star Trek fan who thinks you know everything about the history of Star Trek, check out my best-selling two-volume oral history of Star Trek from St. Martin's Press, The 50-Year Mission, available wherever books, digital, and audiobooks are sold. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman.
2: And I'm Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trek The board
1: vessel's moving into range.
3: On screen.
2: Long range tactical vessel. Transwarp capability. Ablative hull armor. We're being scanned.
0: They're preparing to attack. You must help us enhance our shields. This station will give you access to the shield generators.
3: They are hailing us. Open a channel. We are the Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is
2: futile. I can hear them. In my mind.
3: They've locked on a tractor beam. The
0: Collective is calling to me. I hear it too. Billions of voices speaking as one. We must resist that voice. The crew of Voyager will be destroyed if we don't.
1: And have we got a show for you today? Have we? Now, yes, yes, we have. We ha- well, we have a show. <laughs> uh, it's and it's now Voyager. Do you know what that's about, Darren? Well, it's Betty Davis week. It's on Betty Davis, Inglourious... and, and and her eyes and. The eyes have it. it. Eyes. <laughs> yes, no, no. You know what? I, we, a couple weeks ago, well, actually, it's two of my favorite guests. I, I, let me just come straight out and say it. two of my favorite guests. Uh, you know, t- you know, people say, What are your favorite shows? Well, you know, we we're talking before the show started. Clearly, the novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture, one of my favorites. But two other of my favorite shows, and you went guest, were the Borg show we did with Lisa Klink and The Enterprise. Uh, episode we did with um, Michael Sussman, which was also very a, a very successful episode, uh, ratings wise. Right. So it's so all about the ratings. We have, the, we the, have the com- no advertisers. We but have it's the all combined about the
2: strength of both of them. Here today.
1: Yes, exactly. So, what's stronger than we're stronger with you than without you. Right. So, anyway, I want to introduce before we get too down the road here, Two in the weeds, as we say. Uh, we have a former writer for uh, Star Trek Voyager, and uh, she's also now a novelist, and uh, always a great guest. She's, she's a regular on our sister seer- show, uh, Disco Nights, which is a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Uh, Lisa Clinks back with us. Hello, Lisa.
0: Hey there. How you doing?
1: Oh, I'm wonderful. Welcome. So much more wonderful for having the likes of you two. And uh, <laughs> (laughs) You know, sitting, uh, you know, also joining us to talk about Voyager. Uh, He was a writer producer uh, on the final year of uh, Star Trek Voyager. But before that, he had sold uh, scripts to Voyager. He went on uh, to write and produce for Enterprise and, of course, was the co-creator of Perception. And that is, uh, in case you haven't guessed already, Michael Sussman is back.
3: Hey guys, how are you? you know, I'm waiting for the applause,
1: <laughs> and then I realize we're not doing this in front of a live studio right. audience. <laughs> right. So
3: uh, <sighs> there we go.
0: <laughs>
1: but you know, say lovey, as we say on our say V. So uh, anyway, we you know we thought it was time to really talk about Voyager. Here, you know, it, it's funny because you saw on the news recently, uh, Michelle Abrams Stacey, uh, Abrams, Stacey Abrams, Michelle Abrams, who the hell's Michelle Abrams? <laughs> Stacey Abrams and uh, and uh, AOC both were talking about. Um, Kate Mulgrew's Janeway and, yeah. and Star Trek. Stacey Abrams was talking about how much, uh, how, how what a profound impact um, Voyager had on her life. And I said, God, this this could be coming out of our mouths about the original Star Trek. Yeah. And isn't this wonderful? And um, you know, I look. I'm the first person to say I'm not super knowledgeable about Voyager, but. Um, based on actually some of the conversation we've had on the show, I gone back and started watching, and I watched a Bride of Chaotica, which I loved. I never seen that episode. I thought it was terrific. Um, I watched a couple other episodes, some which I really enjoyed, some not so much. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm going to really be a listener in this episode. I want to hear what you guys have to say because I'm not. You know, I'm not totally prepared, <laughs> uh, um, and uh, that makes two of us. <laughs> and you know, I just I was so fascinated because you know we had Robert Tier Wolf talking about Deep Space Nine, which was really interesting. And my, you know, Michael's Enterprise show was just so fascinating. I got such great feedback on that episode. I'm like, it's time that we do Voyager. and We have like two, you know, the Alpha Omega because you were there at the beginning during the creation of the show, the first couple of seasons. Michael was there at the end. It just seems like such a great. Uh, a thing to uh, to revisit, and now that is voyager so much in the zeitgeist, um, it just seemed the perfect time to talk about uh, voyager and Betty Davis.
2: I believe that's <laughs> the first time that the word zeitgeist has been used on our podcast. So congratulations for that.
1: As do well. I win anything? Set a stake. You do. <laughs> you okay. do. To be named later. Well, let, let's. Um Let's let's talk about that. Were you? I mean, when you, I mean, you heard the Stacey Abrams quote, it must be very gratifying for for you guys. I mean, you know, what, was it your first show, Lisa? That it you was. worked on? It was your it first was. show. I had
0: done a Deep Space Nine episode, but Voyager was my first staff gig, and uh, it was an absolutely terrific place to start. Um, I mean, everybody had worked on a couple of the other shows, and so it was this well oiled machine that everybody knew exactly what they were doing, and so for a newbie like myself. You know, I just I I just soaked it in. You know, I would go into the set and I would go into the editing bay and just soak in as much as I could from everybody. And they were really good about wanting me to learn everything. Mm. Uh, so I, it was a terrific experience. And
1: was was because we don't, we haven't talked about her a lot, but was Jerry uh, Jerry Taylor really a mentor towards you? Or she was, was.
0: She was. Jerry Taylor was terrific um, in terms of you know how to be a showrunner. You know, she was really I thought very very much a role model for the kind of person that I would want to be.
1: You know, we don't talk, we haven't talked about, we, we have a show coming up called The Great Birds of the Galaxy where we talk about a lot of, and we kind of ran, ran out of time and it's very much, you know, like the bane of my existence always to sing the praises of Gene Kuhn, but we talk about Pillar and we talk about Rick and we talk about, you know, but we don't really talk about Jerry that much and it, it's someone who I feel bad because uh, I, I'm such a fan of Jerry's. Just the way she carried herself with such dignity. She was not a Star Trek fan. Um, she was, um, did a great job, really distinguished herself on those last final seasons of... um Uh, Of Next Generation. She'd been on Quincy and a couple other, you know, shows, I think Hardcastle McCormick or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, she was involved in creating Voyager with uh, uh, Michael and Rick and, um, was on it for many years. I, I think she was gone or a consultant by the time you were on the show, Jerry.
3: Oh, uh, yeah, she had she had moved on. But I got to know her. I did an internship back oh, in course. season two of Voyager, and she was, you know, I, Michael had really stepped back by that point and was running the writers' room, and uh, you know, t- terrific to work with, very opening and welcoming to to new writers, new voices. I think Lisa, maybe you had just started. I think so. Not not long before. Yeah. And uh, if, I'm, if I remember, Lisa actually helped me get my first agent. Uh, oh, really? Who, I was like the oh, intern right. on the show, uh, Candice Lake. I, yes, I believe that's it was. Right. Yeah, you owe so her a case of Tronia. I do. I, I'll <laughs> take it. Uh, and I was I was with, with Candice for many years, but it, it was such a, a, a welcoming uh, environment to, to new writers. And you know, part of that was that you know you had two series going on, and they, sure. they combined doing what fifty two episodes a year. And um, if you were someone who could come in and, you know, uh, could come up with some potential ideas for episodes and or actually write one uh, and, and take the burden off of them. Uh, to to a degree, uh, they they were, they were thrilled to have you. They were thrilled to have you, and it
0: you. was a really egalitarian writers' room. Um, I mean, what I had to say as a brand new writer, what Michael had to say as you know the intern, was just as valuable as what Jerry had to say as the executive producer. Uh, I mean, obviously, she had the final say on everything, but it was it was she really encouraged everybody to throw out ideas, and it wasn't you know that you know your your story editor title made you less important than the supervising producer. Yeah. It was The Good Idea Wins.
1: And I love that she, she really had that kind of Teddy Roosevelt maxim, you know, sort of walk softly and carry a big stick. She never threw her weight around. Never. I mean, I you know, I knew her obviously as a journalist, but she was very open and very, very sweet. Um, and, you know, Jerry probably isn't as well known in Star Trek Circles because I think after she retired, she didn't really – um, she wasn't out there anymore. She she doesn't give interviews. She doesn't talk about Star Trek. I mean, she sort of went off and retired, and you don't hear much about Jerry anymore. Whereas you know, Rick is still occasionally doing interviews. He, people know who you know. Obviously, Michael passed away. It's it's um, but you know, Jerry sort of the quiet, you know, sort of un unacknowledged great bird in a way because mm-hmm. he was so important to the formative years of that. And in a lot of ways, she was Janeway. You know, yeah. in a lot of ways.
0: She was in that she didn't, again, like you said, throw her weight around, but she was undeniably in charge.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating to me having worked, you know, I, I worked on a show recently, a, a, not set in outer space, but set on a ship. And, you know, the two leads on that show, the actors were, you know, good guys. Uh, the, you know, they were, they were white men, uh, which... You know, two three years ago, still felt a little odd to me. Having started twenty some years ago on Voyager with this diverse cast, with all of these diverse voices, um, the writing, the writers' room, probably could have been not probably, definitely could have been more diverse. Um, but I, I, believe, you know, I know that Jerry certainly tried mm-hmm. uh, it, to to bring in, uh, you know, uh, more female voices, people of color um that show is so far ahead of its time and it's kind of it's shocking to me to look back on it now and it it still stands out in many ways as say the original did for you know 20 some years with uh that diversity that you that you saw on that bridge uh Voyager <sighs> took that up a notch uh even to the point when a you know a new doctor who is announced and it's a female and that's wonderful but people forgot well you know Star Trek did this quite a few years ago uh to me, however, it's it's really gratifying that people are rediscovering that show again. I was yeah. there. I wrote a couple of episodes, but I was I was always on the outside, like trying to get get in. I did an right. internship. I was I was trying to sell them more stories, and ultimately, I I, I got in there at the at the end, uh, working with a, a writing partner. Um, but I, I just love that the show feels like it's having in this its moment right now. Um, I was astonished to open the New York Times of last weekend and see there's a whole article about a potential presidential candidate talking about her love for Star Trek, but particularly her love of Janeway. Potentially
1: a future vice president sooner than
3: that. (laughs) Um, And I I, I just think that show was really meaningful to a whole generation. It just wasn't apparent to us at the time.
0: Well, I think even at the time. I mean, there was certainly an awful lot of press about, ooh, the first female captain, you know, and so I think they there was a fairly big deal about it at the time. Um, but I think you're right that it is sort of coming back around now, especially with Discovery also having essentially a female lead, even if she isn't the captain. I think that, that some parallels are being drawn.
1: Yeah, no, that, 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 there's, there's, there's definitely truth to that. And going back to the idea of the first female captain, obviously Star Trek, it's important to look at the context in which Voyager was created, you know, um, Voyager, uh, UPN uh, was looking to launch as a network. Um, clearly, the idea of having a Star Trek show was very appealing. Uh, Next Generation had been a huge success in syndication. Deep Space Nine, a less successful uh, in, in syndication. And we're not talking creatively, because, you know, we we're all huge Deep Space Nine fans here, but um, ratings-wise. So I think there was definitely this desire to play it safe in the sense that Let's go back to a ship. Let's make it as close to the next generation as possible without it being exactly next generation. So, of course, they conceived this idea of the McKee, which had been established in the next generation. The ship stranding in a del- Delta Quadrant. The idea would offer fresh opportunities for exploration because the Delta Quadrant would be so different mm-hmm. uh, than than the Alpha Quadrant. And um, they went ahead and cast uh, the great actress Genevieve Bourgeois as 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 Captain Nicole Janeway. So. What what point did you come into the show? Were you there um, when this was all going on?
0: I wasn't there for the birth of the show. I think they had sort of a half season to start with. Mm-hmm. And then their first full season is when I came on board. Um, like I said, I had done a Deep Space Nine episode, and so I was kind of in the, that orbit. Right. Um, but then I got pulled on uh, staff at Voyager for essentially their second season.
1: Did you find the experience uh, um, doing a freelance for Deep Space Nine dramatically different from Voyager? Or, um, you know, obviously it's different being on staff than when you're a freelancer. It's just, you know, the way that scripts are broken and how involved you might be. But I'm just curious if there's any compare and contrast there between, you know, obviously working under Ira Bear and his group of merry men and, uh, <laughs> you know, Voyager and, 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 of course, Jerry and, and the staff there.
0: I, I actually found it fairly similar. Um, I mean, just the whole... The whole environment in the heart building, which is where both shows were, was just very, very congenial. I mean, again, there was no, you know, yelling and screaming and there was no divas. And I think... I mean, you know, as cliche as it sounds, we did kind of feel like the Trek family, mm-hmm. and I I definitely got that feeling in, in Ira's writer's room, um, because I always actually did the same internship, uh, the Writers Guild internship that Michael did on Voyager, I did on Deep Space Nine. Mm. And so I was already kind of familiar with the guys, and they were familiar with me, uh, so it was a really smooth transition.
1: And uh, what was it like that first full season? Obviously, you were coming off that truncated season, and, and they held those four episodes, if I remember, um, for the second season, which which was interesting because obviously you're trying at the end of any season, you do a postmortem and say, "What do we do well? What do we do badly? You know how are we going to course correct for the next season?" Discovery's clearly done that you know in, in, in their world, um, but yet you got saddled with these four. You know, holdover episodes from the previous season, which really weren't your show. Second season, um, you know, like the Amelia Earhart, the thirty sevens, and right. yeah. I, I, you know, I don't remember. It's a long time ago. But um, uh, can you can you talk about sort of maybe what you remember of what those discussions were, and sort of um, you know, obviously the McKee thing went by the wayside very early. Very quickly. The idea yeah. of two feuding crews, and, and just if you could speak to that a little bit.
0: Well, it's funny because. There was those four episodes, but what really felt more like what we had behind us was the previous series and movies and everything that was Star Trek mm-hmm. in that pretty much any time we talked about a story idea, it's like, oh, and white, they did it on third season of Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, wait, they did that in the second movie. Every single idea had been done before. And so trying to find anything or at least a new spin on an idea that had been done before was always the challenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people would come in and pitch you know, the most common reject was, oh, no, they did that. No, mm-hmm. we've done that.
3: Or we're doing that right now. That's or down Or we're on doing the stage. it right now. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of that.
0: Yeah. So I think that just having the whole weight of, of the history of Trek behind us, I think felt more, uh, more onerous than having four episodes from the first season.
1: Well, I want to go back to the very beginning of this, because one thing a lot of people may not know is that Darren was actually involved with Voyager very early on.
2: I, I got to work on the pilot uh, only um, as sort of uh, backup for Rick Sternback and Richard James um, to... Come up with designs for some of the stuff that, you know, poor Rick didn't have time for because he was trying to get the Voyager design approved, and he was, you know, solely focused on that, and that was a, a Herculean task. Um, so I got to design some early ideas for the Kazon ships and and the uh, the array itself. Uh, what came out of that was basically my design um, and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, but. It was very interesting uh, to sort of uh, work in the environment because I, I knew most of these people for you know a couple years before then because I, I I would I, I knew several people in the art department on Deep Space Nine at the time, and so I was I was a hanger on and when I was working on other shows at Paramount I would go and visit them all the time, uh, but uh, it it was very interesting to be sort of put into the machine and try and you know be a a, a uh, contributing cog mm-hmm. um and uh, to try and mesh with everything else and uh i, I find it I, I found it very difficult at first um because i would be doing drawing after drawing after drawing and nothing was getting approved and uh pretty soon i though i i got into the sort of the rhythm and sort of the mindset that uh, I guess, Rick and Jerry had at the time for uh, what they wanted from Voyager. And as I learned, it was a lot of input from a lot of other people, too, at the same time. So once you get through the first ring, you got to go through, you know, the others, certainly in the in the design area, Um but it was fun, and it was it, it was the first time that I'd worked on television because I'd mostly worked on movies before then. And the pace was uh, a lot uh, a lot faster, and I I found it uh, very fun. And I got to I got to uh, use I mentioned this before, but uh, the uh, office that uh, at on the Paramount lot that was used by the uh, the young uh, writer in uh, Sunset Boulevard, the D girl. The D girl yeah. uh, in Sunset Boulevard. That was my office on <laughs> on Voyager, just down the you know down the uh, uh, road from. Uh, but you the, never
1: saw Cecil B DeMille drive I, by, and r-
2: I rarely saw Cecil B DeMille <laughs> drive by, and uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was fun. But I, I you know I looked right across at uh, the Deep Space Nine stage, and it was uh, it was it was fascinating. It you know it's one of my uh, favorite uh, reminiscence of uh, working on a big studio lot, which was a lot of fun. Well, and, you know, Paramount is, is
1: for anybody who hasn't been there, uh, is just the great classic studio mm-hmm. lot. Not only have you seen their in movies like Sunset Boulevard, but it, it, it's the least updated. They have new buildings, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's, it, it's almost like you're going back in time.
2: Certainly was in those days. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, now there's the Paramount Theater and a bunch of, but yeah. still, it's... Um, it was really, it's remarkable, you know, very historic, iconic kind of kind of lot. You know, I remember seeing the pilot at the Paramount Theater yeah. um, and a caretaker. And at the time, I loved, I mean, I still think it's a really good Star Trek pilot. Yeah. But I loved that pilot. I had really high expectations for that show. I thought, oh, the, the cast was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I loved, I thought the reveal at the end was a real throwback to sort of classic Star Trek. I was Absolutely. really... Um, I was really jazzed by the whole thing. But then I thought the conflict potentially was really interesting between uh, Chakotay and and Janeway. And, and, you know, obviously the doctor was a character that people really gravitated to who Bob Picardo is just fantastic. Oh,
0: yeah. We all we all wanted to write for the doctor Mm -hmm. because we knew that Bob Picardo would just knock it out of the park. And you could write something that was a little funny and he'd make it hilarious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that never ended. That's all the way till the end of the show.
3: Yeah, no, I, I wrote this second to last episode called Renaissance Man, where mm-hmm. the doctor was basically impersonating people and on the, on this caper and it wasn't a deep episode by any means but <laughs> he was amazing in it and i got to i got to have him finally confess his love for seven of nine right. which i never even asked anybody if i if he was if his character was in love with seven right. i thought he was right. and i thought at this moment where he thought he's his program is degrading and he's gonna die and if she's there he's gonna tell her yeah. and i and i wrote it and they shot it. I was. I was. I was amazed. So a huge piece awesome. of the mythology that
1: never got really part of the break.
3: Never really a big deal. I and mean, like, you just got it in there. I feel like that again. I you know I, I arrived you know, a little after Lisa did, but I feel like maybe uh, in the Neelix character uh, was perhaps thought like okay, he he might be the breakout. Uh, right. or, you know the the. Uh, you know the, the, fan, fan the fan favorite. Yeah, yeah. that was. But the the, I think the
1: the thought. Yeah,
3: I think. But and I love Ethan Phillips, and sure. He's, yeah, He's great in the terrific. role, and uh, that, that he he and his character grew on me over over, over the course of of that show. But uh, Picardo really brought it, and I think that was it was kind of delightful to see the writers as a viewer really discover him and uh, his brilliance. Well, that was a, a character that really evolved because, of course. Neelix
1: is introduced with Kess uh, right. in, in the in the pilot, and by the end of, what, the second season, when when, when Jerry is introduced, uh, Kess has gone by the wayside. Yeah. You know, um, and it seemed like that was such, that was going to be a very important relationship to the show, but it never really became that, did it?
0: It, it never really did. I think that Neelix, again, was a character that that we didn't make as use much use of as we could have in that he was going to be sort of our guide in the Delta Quadrant, right. you know, that he was going to know some of the alien races that we ran into. But since we were traveling in a straight line, kind of away from the territory that he was familiar with, yeah. it kind of became less believable that that right. he would know the people that we were running into. And again, with the idea that we were stranded and far away from everything His role was supposed to be that he was the guy that could get you something, you know, that he would negotiate with alien races to get us food or supplies or anything like that. And we never really exploited that, I think, as much as we could have. We never really saw him being, being, you know, the wheeler dealer or the negotiator Mm -hmm. because we just kind of replicated everything.
1: There's only one negotiator. (laughs) It's <laughs> Bill Shadner. If you need airline <laughs> tickets, um, but I want, I you know, uh, I think it was. You know, I remember I, Michael Pillar said something like that. He said, "You know, we'd establish these things like the Kazon, which was a big thing for him. He loved it. Nobody else did. Um, but the, yeah. the, the 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 problem is, is that." Um, you know, if you're constantly moving away and in and movement, or how long can you keep these civilizations in play if you're always, you know, heading away? Yeah, before to,
2: it, it becomes just ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: especially something like the K-Zone, which is kind of an inferior technology to ours. Like, how much territory could they possibly really right. have? And I guess the
3: original idea was they would be like gangs. Like that, yeah.
0: that was the conception, was that they were going to be equivalent to L.A. street gangs. Right,
3: right. I wonder if today... I I, they, I never quite got the K's on. I mean, there were yeah. documents that some of the other writers had written. And, you know, I'm just a new kid. I'm the intern. Sure. And, you know, honestly, they look like Klingons to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I think to the casual viewer, they probably didn't seem all that different. But, you know, if you were to do it today, maybe it would be, you know, some kind of fundamentalist-type character mm-hmm. or group of characters that would be a little more relatable than like, It was than, a very 90s
1: idea, street gangs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, in fact, I know – I remember Michael saying – um, that originally he wanted them to be super young, like, like you know, 14, 15, like Lord of the Flies kind of right. young kind of thing, because they never survived to to adulthood because they were so violent. But then, of course, they didn't want to cast, you know, young characters. Right. They need a studio teacher. and They could only work so many things. The whole idea seems completely misconceived, well, you the know. idea have like
3: an immature race that. You know, somehow ended up getting all this advanced technology. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Was that the backstory of the on I don't even. Well, I think the idea
0: was that they were essentially really successful scavengers. Right. That right. they would, you know, they had all this cool technology because they would just go out and take it. Um, that was
2: kind of one of the conceits that that we had very early on because I I was designing a lot of their stuff and the, I think the main thing that I designed that made it through the whole thing was their hand weapons were sort of. Constructs of other bits of other things that hmm. were sort of clued together, and the first designs that I did for their ships were sort of based on the same thing. And they, I, I did a whole bunch of designs that sort of looked like uh, almost space pirate ships mm-hmm. with riggings and stuff like that that were sort of visually interesting, but no one seemed to like that idea. Hmm. But uh, I, I thought it would have been fun to sort yeah. of give it a little different spin on the you know normal. You know, box in space kind of thing that we would see on Star Trek, but sure. um, but I thought that it was a, an interesting idea that just never never yeah, went like, anywhere.
3: I you know I, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like in some ways you know Voyager premiered what ninety five, yeah, the beginning I think so. the beginning of the year, and uh, first contact came out what ninety six. Is that right? I think so. I feel like in some ways they were sort of like waiting for the release of that film so the Borg could be available to them again since mm-hmm. we yeah. were already mm-hmm. like in that part right. of the galaxy. Certainly that had been you know planted early on and uh, and I, I can't remember how long it was until Seven of Nine and, and the Borg were introduced. I and mean, there were Borg stories before Seven came on. Yeah. Before Jerry came on the show. But it did seem that it was a
1: show in search of a villain because yeah. the Kazon didn't work and so you know then you you had that whole thing with uh Seska sending messages. Yep. The monkey. Which mm-hmm. I know, again, Michael also was like, I, I in, introduced this little sort of serialized B story that like totally destroys the episodes because <laughs> you could be doing a cute little episode and then you have the Seska plot that just totally doesn't belong there. Um, but, um, you know, then the, you had the, fa- the phage aliens, which I thought were really cool. Yeah, the yeah. body sca- they scavengers, cool. they were great. Um, the herogen were cool. The, yeah, the herogen you know, were very cool. And then what was it? The, 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 the aliens from phasic space or the, the species 857 right. oh yeah 8, 57631 yeah. whatever <laughs> um,
0: but, but yeah we always always had the problem of we couldn't have a recurring villain stick around for very long right. because we were traveling in a straight line away from their territory
1: but see that's why I think it was your episode and maybe that was so clever in, I guess the second season which was the one where they're communicating with the Alpha Quadrant turns out it's the Romulans that they're talking to yes I love that I like to me that's a great twist you know that was, that, that that's, was fun that's the show at its best early on. Um, I mean,
0: that was always the the trick, was that we were trying to get home, we were trying to communicate, but at the same time, we wanted to be in the Delta Quadrant, which was this, you know, Wild West kind of unexplored. We had we had no diplomatic relations with anybody, but then we wanted to... Occasionally would introduce, you know, familiar aliens like the Romulans mm. um, and the Borg, which I think... I think, made the universe feel a little smaller sometimes sure. when we would run into people that we already knew. But at the same time, you wanted to kind of connect to the existing, you know, Trek universe. Um, we
1: ran
3: into Ferengi.
1: We ran into Clingons. We ran into lots <laughs> Did you find yeah. there was a sort of risk-adverse... Uh, you know, look, obviously, the fight between Ron and Brandon has been well-documented, largely because of me and Ed, but, um, <laughs> but the, it's been well-documented. You know, they've talked about it, um, uh, but... You know, obviously it was a fundamental disconnect as to the nature of standalone versus serialized television at the time where there was a sense, certainly, you know, in the Rick camp that you you had to hit the reset button every episode yeah. and that things, you know, in each episode, whereas, you know, Ron was kind of lobbying for, like, the ship could should get the shit beat out of it and that should continue. And then you get to the point where you're scavenging for parts and by the time the Voyager eventually gets home. You don't even recognize it because it's so different. Um You know, were those conversations that were going on and how difficult was it to sort of be in a situation where you are hitting the reset button and you're not able to, you know, that was the nature of television back then. So, I mean, now through the lens of 20 years later, it's very easy to say, wow, wouldn't that show have been great if it was serialized and stuff. (laughs) But, you know, we got to put ourselves in context.
0: Yeah, we definitely had the directive of these need to be self-contained. Um, because the idea was people could watch them out of order, and you wouldn't have to. You know, there wasn't binge watching at the time. I mm-hmm. mean, you couldn't. You couldn't sit there and watch. You know, six episodes. Oh, there was
1: binge watching on UPN. It was a different kind of binging. It was like we were purging more There's Homeboys <laughs> from Outer Space. I mean, everything on that network was was awful. I mean, remember, I mean, you remember what, like, James Doohan is in Homeboys from Outer Space. What else did they have? It was like the worst. I mean, Nowhere Man, if I remember, was pretty good. It was words, but but What do you really think? Do you remember that network? I mean, it was just the worst shows. The worst and my favorite story about UPN was who was it? Was it Lucy Salhaney who was running UPN? Yeah. I, I, I think that they could they they wanted to put him this big skyscraper, but she was afraid of earthquakes, so they had to build a building. She would not be in a building that was more than two stories tall. So the head of the network, so they had a that's why UPN was in Brentwood and not like in Hollywood because they had to find a building that was two stories tall because the head of the network was afraid to be in a building that was too tall I mean it's crazy
0: I, I had not heard those stories yeah I was uh, way above my pay grade so. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you never discussed
1: that in the
3: writers room okay
1: where do you we stand on ghosts in the heart building that's another one of my favorite stories
0: again we, I heard rumors I, I personally never ran into any ghosts in the heart building but uh... did somebody
3: die in the heart building
1: no, apparently. But apparently, you know, you talk to people, careers. But, yes, yeah. yeah. Live, no. Oh, yes, yeah, so a lot of dead careers. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of people think that, that, you know, a lot of people who are who are nuts think that the heart Building is haunted. Um, you know, I, I, a lot. But anyway, we're we're digressing. So let's talk about how, um, you know, how much. Speaking of ghosts, the ghosts of next generation hovered over Voyager. You know as you're doing that second season you know and i think at that point next generation is now off the air mm-hmm. um but how how much you know that 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 sort of was either a help or a hindrance or something people were talking about trying to avoid you talk about how much how hard it is to come up new original stories mention what it's like now right
0: yeah um, yeah but fortunately i think that discovery is in enough of a different universe that they can they can tell stories in which people are actually in conflict with each other I mean, we were still going by the Roddenberry directive of, in the future, people are evolved and they don't have arguments with each other, which is why the whole Maquis thing kind of went away. Right. Because we all were one big, happy Starfleet family. And it's really tough to do good drama without conflict between the characters. Mm. And so I think that Discovery, I mean, I'm a little jealous in that they seem to have kind of taken the cuffs off and have people who don't like each other and don't trust each other. As well as people who like and trust each other, which you have, feels like it just frees you up for a lot more stories.
1: Michael, I mean, how, you know, we talk, they called it Roddenberry's Box. And, you know, the big defenders of that were Rick and Michael. They've, you know, but you as an original series fan, do you feel that that was an accurate interpretation of Roddenberry's Box? That. You know, they, they they basically, in you know, with the enforcers of this dictum that characters could have no conflict. You could only have conflict with characters that weren't our characters. You know, from the outside, the guest star and stuff right. was fine, but it couldn't. You couldn't have. But is that actually what Star Trek really was? I, I don't think yeah,
3: so. I don't know. I mean, there's, I think there's a couple of different elements going on. One is that the sort of Roddenberry-an, uh, you know, perfect future where everyone's going to, you know everything's going to be great and, you know, a close relative dies and you're not even going to be upset about it because, you know, we all have such great mental health future. we're so involved. You know, so evolved, there's that element to it and then the, I, I feel, but like from a storytelling point of view, I feel like that was kind of like the fun and the challenge of writing the show um, to, to find conflict in ways that no other show actually could find it and it often ended up being a subtler type of conflict mm. Um, but you know, say you look you know i 'm huge sitting on edge forever, you know one of you know the greatest episodes ever, but looking that original draft where you have a crew member on the enterprise dealing drugs right. that doesn 't feel like the original series to me, so I think for people to say that that edict of or sort of version of that edict didn 't exist for the original series, I think is incorrect i don 't know that they said I think they probably said i don 't know if it was Roddenberry Bay or Coon just probably would have looked at that and said this doesn 't feel like our show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's how, you know, every different showrunner, writer, whoever you, whoever you were in, in, in that capacity on, on future series have your own sort of internal guide as to does this feel like the Star Trek universe? And there are shows next gen to me, particularly in the early years, kind of went overboard in that direction where yeah. everyone was, you know super evolved
1: well you right. still have stuff like Balance of Terror where you know he's quite racist towards you know sure. against Vulcans I mean there's you know so there's a lot of that in the original series but one thing I think that maybe Voyager particularly in the early days was so loath to embrace the conflict even though it was baked into the premise even though it was um, supposed to be the premise was yeah. <laughs> uh, the fact that Deep Space Nine had embraced conflict and again considered you know a failure in certain circles because of uh, the the ratings that weren't as high as Next Generations
0: mm-hmm. well I think that you you did have a lot of Star Trek fans who embraced that optimistic view of the future, who did not want to see our characters fighting with each other, who wanted to see our heroes banding together against external threats. Right. I mean, that was an accurate perception of a lot of the fans, was that's what they liked about it. And so I can see that if that's the trick that you want, then something like Deep Space Nine probably was a little too dark for you and probably was a little too morally ambiguous. And so maybe going back to that in Voyager might have felt like kind of a return to the real Trek um, in which people cooperated.
1: Right. How hard was it to sort of create a world in the Delta Quadrant or, you know, a a sector of space, a quadrant (laughs) that felt different from what we'd seen in previous Star Treks? You know, when you're sitting there in the writer's room and sort of, you know, with that blank board for a season you know, filling that out and and sort of figuring out how this is different because we're on the other side of the galaxy. you know how challenging was that?
0: well, it was challenging enough that we kind of dropped it mm. <laughs> to be quite honest. Man. I mean the whole idea that we would have to scavenge stuff and that by the time Voyager got home, it would be this you know clodged together mm-hmm. you know brand new thing that kind of kind of went away. I mean again, with the replicator technology and the essentially you know, eternal power source of the dilatheum crystals. Right. Basically, you know, I mean, we kept destroying shuttlecraft and having brand new shuttlecraft. I mean, I personally destroyed at least three of them. Right. And, and <laughs> <laughs> the idea that we could just replicate a new one, it it was... I, again, that was part of the whole hitting the reset button at the end in mm. that if if we had kind of gone with the story of the ship is falling apart and we are always on the verge of of you know falling to pieces, mm-hmm. that would have been a serialized story, and we weren't doing that, yeah, yeah.
3: which again, you know Galactica did a, a great job with that, and the, that was probably never going to be Star Trek Voyager because of you know the era it, it, they were in and 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 the people at the top you know the, of the chain of command. Um, but, you know, I think you could have, you could have taken the pilot again, which I think was a terrific pilot. And like in a day long rewrite, taken out the Maquis stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, made it a mission into the Delta Mm -hmm. Quadrant where they're flying into that wave of, Mm -hmm. you know, special effects, whatever it was (laughs) that that sends them. And and they're on a mission 75,000 light years away. And... And I think that also would have made it a little more trekky And now unexpected things happen, and they were yeah. maybe they were planning on coming back in right. a week, and now they're they're stuck there, and so you still have that drama. Um, uh, but it and you could also you, you could write into the fact that they have this almost infinite power source. There, there was an episode that they did I don't know sometime second or third season. Um, I, I think I was still an intern. And I feel like it was something Michael Pillar had written and he was trying to... They were doing an episode where they were using the holodeck, you know, like a holodeck B story and you also had the ship is out of power A story mm-hmm. and having to write around how the, the holodecks had their right. own separate individual power source so we could do that yeah. little fantasy show. Yet meanwhile... It's Battlestar Galactica on the rest right. of the ship. It just made zero sense. Mm-hmm. It's like, go, do one or the other, you know? And I think ultimately they did just say, you know, okay, we've got replicators, we've got unlimited energy, let's run with it. It would seem to me that one of the
2: sort of um, sources of conflict between the, uh, between the crew would be the desire to put all the resources into trying to get home mm-hmm. or put your resources into trying to settle somewhere and exist where you can.
0: Yeah, there there was no such conflict. Everybody wanted to go home. Yeah, and that, that, that was seems it. completely <laughs> completely
2: yeah. ludicrous to me. Because human beings sometimes have different, you know, outlooks toward things. Sure. And, you know, they would say, We're stuck here. We are never going to make it home at this rate, so we might as well find the best planet we can and just be there.
3: I think that's a great episode.
0: Um, <laughs> the the problem been, is yeah. on,
3: you know, on the other series, you know, on, there was an episode of Next Gen where they flew like, you know, I don't know, a million lights to right. like, the very edge, edge right. of the visible universe. So, it, you know, setting up the show with this unsolvable dilemma, I didn't quite... Buy it. I mean, I, right. I knew the yeah. writers could get us home in three minutes if they wanted to. They wanted We've seen to. it sure. on Star yeah. Trek before. Sure. So uh, it, again, it, but it, that's what led them back into a very familiar mission of the week. We're let's explore. We're heading home. Sure, we don't know when we'll get there, but
0: but we know we will. Yeah, we because know we had set up that there are several technologies in this universe, like the array, you know, like the, the array, array, right? and wormholes, yeah. and there were certainly plausible ways that we were going to get home.
3: And we kept running into them uh, and uh, we kept very running often. Into them. Right. And darn it, didn't work out this week. You know, like, not going home like this week. Gilligan's Island. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, was, it was. that was very evident, and, yeah, and it, it was, was talked about <laughs> on the show. Um, but yeah, the solution I think was to, if if I'd been running the show, I would have like made a joke about it about Gilligan's yeah. Island. Have Tom Paris yeah. bring it up because he's the guy who knows old right. television, right? And then and then just not do those stories anymore, and right. just say we're embracing the mission. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 yeah. interesting. You know, I I have to say that um, uh, you know all that
1: is actually a really, really good point uh, regarding writing for the characters. We talked about the idea that um, everybody loved the Doctor and what's not to like, right? Um, you know, with Janeway, was there a kind of um, a different approach to writing a female captain than maybe the way you would have written Kirk or the way you would have written Picard or something? No, the great thing with
0: Janeway is that her gender was completely irrelevant, Mm -hmm, as it would be. And so, I mean, there was that brief, I think, kind of misguided holodeck thing where she had this holodeck, like Jane Eyre type of story where she was like governess. And I mean, I guess theoretically that would have... You know that would have been an escape, but I thought that that I never bought that Janeway would have a fantasy of being you In know an outlander. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so and and that actually did disappear pretty quickly. Yeah,
1: I mean that's why I love Tom Paris. I mean I'll say it again. I mean I love that Bride of Chaotic episode. I yeah. think it's so much fun. Um, I thought it was a hoot. Um, but, uh
0: I mean honestly, everybody liked writing for the Seven character as well mm-hmm. right. because she was again different right, and she could be abrasive right and she could have conflict well, she wasn't a prestige of
1: other characters we'd seen in previous shows. A lot of them, you could say the high concept is this is this character from this show combined with this, this is you know Odo yeah. or this is this. now, which is it's really interesting to me that an episode that you don't often hear in Star Trek top fifty lists or ten lists, including ours is an episode that arguably has had more impact on subsequent Star Trek series than any, which is Ensign Rowe, mm-hmm. you know, which mm-hmm. establishes sort of, and the wounded, sorry, establishes the McKee, establishes Ensign Rowe. Because, of course, Ensign Rowe, that gave birth to Deep Space Nine, the whole Bajor um, originally Nana Visitor's character was going to be originally Michelle yeah, Forbes right. as Ensign Rowe then that mythology again gets co-opted for Voyager how how impactful that whole thing is when it's not considered you know nobody t- they say in our light Darmok uh, who watches you know, nobody ever talks about Ensign Rowe yeah, right. and yet that is arguably one of the most important episodes of Star Trek because it led to you know literally two series being kind of spun off from it Um uh, what, um, you know, w- w- one person who's been kind of outspoken uh, about the series, uh, and not particularly in a flattering way, uh, is Robert Beltran. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Beltran is a guy who I love from Night of the Comet, and I loved from um, Eating Raúl, Phenomenal, the Paul Bortel film. And yet he has
0: kind of a thankless role in Voyager. Oh, completely. He had an absolutely thankless role in that, again, in the pilot, he was going to be sort of the head of, of the Maquis. Mm-hmm. And was going to be presumably the voice of of, of conflict, you know, right. of, of rebellion and questioning the captain and always being kind of com- – not exactly a power struggle, but that was set up in the pilot. The, the checks and balances. The for, checks and balances yeah. for Janeway. And we never went there. And but so does he that was make her useless. look weak
1: if you have – a first officer who's constantly
3: questioning her choices. I mean, just from a, a practical—that's
0: probably why point we never did that. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it right.
3: sounds good in, uh, theoretically, but it, as soon as you start writing those scenes, and he, if, if your number one doesn't uh, immediately toe the line, jettison out the airlock. Yeah. <laughs> but
2: how interesting would that episode have been?
3: you know I
0: I mean part of the challenge with Voyager is that we had something like nine regulars right? Mm -hmm. and so trying to develop all of those characters as fully fleshed out just didn't happen I mean we just we never we never developed Chakotay very well we never developed Harry Kim very well Um, and so I can see it must have been sort of frustrating for the actors you know to see that you know Janeway got developed the Doctor 7 you know Paris and Torres to some extent but if you were not one of those characters, you were kind of interchangeable.
3: I feel like if you were, if your character didn't pop for whatever reason, whether it's the performance or the mm, writing, and you, and you really need both. And I mm. feel like every one of the series to one degree, particularly as they've got sure. larger and larger casts, uh, you know, you have a character you think might be, oh, this will be our comic relief. This will be – and it just doesn't work with the audience and, well, you can now kill the character off or – have him stick around for another five or six years. And then so,
0: Voyager, you couldn't have him transfer to another ship because right. we were all kind of stuck together. Well, it's so right. funny because, you know, other than
1: Deep Space Nine, which is truly an ensemble show, all these shows, you know, are really star vehicles with an ensemble cast. You know, you, you know we, we listened to people like George Decay and stuff complain, oh, I, I didn't have enough to do. But, you know, it was Kirk Spock and McCoy. That was the yeah. show. And occasionally Scotty would get an episode. Great. You know, with Next Generation, you have Marina complaining, oh, I never got anything to do you know or, or Gates and you know that's kind of true um, because it was sort of Picard you know Riker and, and Data show and then Wharf occasionally we get something yeah. juicy and then certainly in Deep Space Nine he got a lot of great stuff um, you know in Voyager it turned out to be the same way where it became the Janeway, Nine, Doctor you know and Tom Paris show kind of
3: well, you would still do episodes, you know, Harry Kim got a couple of episodes here Oh, and yeah, and I mean, we and, would certainly
0: and... talk about, you know, which character's episode is this. And yeah. there, were, there were Harry Kim episodes, and there were Chakotay episodes, but you're right, those characters just never never quite never... pop the yeah. same way. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, I wh- mean... It I'm doesn't just... help when you're disparaging the writers, either. <laughs>
0: what? what
1: oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, you know what Michael's alluding to, and he's just tossing off a joke there, but, you know, Robert Beltran was very outspoken in terms of bashing the writing on the show throughout its run and it got more and more uh you know so specific it, and it, got it went re- off. yeah and it,
3: and and you know i think by the end him and brannon were really yeah i i wasn't really privy to to what was going on there but yeah i he, he by the time i joined the show there wasn't a whole lot of like what can we do for chicote although we did give him seven of nine as a love interest so maybe it worked for him. well
2: <laughs> i mean Laning. how how good would the writing have been if there was the Chicote in the airlock episode. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but, I mean, you know,
1: look, you could That'll have left somebody Jamie behind, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, and then, and you know, I know Garrett. There were other issues as well that complicated his situation. But, uh, but you know, even that, he, there was a while where he was pretty outspoken that he was unhappy that he wasn't being serviced. Um, and then, you know, Tom and, Paris, yeah, he
0: wasn't wrong. I mean, right. he wasn't. Right.
1: <laughs> And, and and Tom Paris, you know, has its its origins in the first duty because he was supposed to be Locarno until they decided they didn't want to make character payments and right. <laughs> basically changed the guy's name but kept the same character. Um, so
0: and again uh, in the pilot he was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you know, arguably he was sort of the star of the story in the yes. pilot. Right. Yes. And then again he kind of became a generic bridge guy.
1: Yes. But you know, was, he was as close as you had to the the strapping young man with the little tossing off the jokey asides. Who, yeah, you know. But um,
0: adventure boy, yeah, <laughs> adventure. He was
1: adventure boy, and uh, you know, it's surprising because here we are on paper. What was probably when they were writing the Bible and conceiving the show, the most dynamic character, probably the one that like, oh, Pete, the fans are going to love this. We haven't even talked about it yet, which is the half Klingon, half human. Right. You know, yeah. Bill Belana Torres. And
0: mean, she got kind of blanded out too. It's true.
1: You know, I mean, what was it, I mean, by the time I mean, obviously, she's directing towards the end of the show. I mean, when she's gone on a very successful directing
3: career. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we tried to hire her on other shows, and she's always too busy. <laughs> yeah, uh, we <laughs> did too. And she's yeah. always working. I mean, uh, but, the
0: same with uh, Robert Duncan McNeil. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's real big in the Marvel universe and the gifted and stuff. He's, yeah. he's also gone on to direct uh, as opposed to acting,
1: which. is super smart of these guys. Yeah, it is. How often would they be working? But as directors, they're working all the time. Yeah. All the time and um and same with John, which freaks. You yeah. know, I mean he's constantly working. And I have to say there was a discovery episode on 2 weeks ago that John directed. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say anything about the episode, but he directed the shit out of that. Yeah, he did. It was some of the <laughs> best directing I've ever seen on that show and like I mean I've worked with him and he's great. That episode was really well directed. Agreed. It was a well directed episode. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> you are so right. um, yeah. So um,
0: I mean, I I got I guess lucky in a way in that I got to do a lot with the um, with the Paris Torres relationship, yeah. which I think kind of got to explore both of those characters. Um, especially in the um, the Blood Fever episode where we decided to basically have uh, Balana go through Pon Far and kind of bring her attraction to Paris because he had always been kind of flirting with her. Mm-hmm. But this episode kind of brought out, you know, that she actually felt the same for him and it kind of got their relationship kicked off. Right. And that relationship actually got to develop to the point where they got married. And so that, I think, helped both of those characters. Mm-hmm. You know, they had sort of that fun friction for a long time and that they were both actually attracted to each other.
1: If you want to help develop a character, marry them. It was the same thing with Kalamini in Data's Day and, yeah. you know, yeah. he was the transport chief. There was nothing remarkable about Kalamini. Right. Really bland character. Good. Fine actor. Oh, but yeah. But bland character. But it really was with when they married him off that he became an interesting character and, of course,
3: he had great stories in Deep Space yeah. Nine. It was like, where, where was this guy on Next Gen? <laughs> I would have loved it if Voyager could have done maybe a little more of that because I wrote yeah. some of those later arcs for uh, B'Elanna and Tom and, mm-hmm. and they were fun. Yeah uh, but I mean, that is something that you feel even on a on a, on a ship. Forget the, the maquis of it; that the crew would, you can't. They there's no shore leave. They really start hooking up mm-hmm. to, to a point where it might even become a problem. Was <laughs> there? <laughs> um, well, that's a great point.
1: I mean, absolutely right. They're trapped. It's like you know, it's like co- you're stuck at college when it snows. You know, it's right. like, <laughs> it's like you final can't episode get in. right
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's the hazards of dating people that you work with. You know, right. if you break up, you're still working with them. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: You can't just transfer off the
2: ship. to...
0: Was there ever any?
2: Was there ever any talk about keeping Tuvix?
0: (laughs) I do not recall any such conversations. I see. (laughs) You know, it's so funny you say that. I got to tell you.
1: So, you know, when we sold Fifty Year Mission to our editor at St. Martin's, um, he's a big Star Trek fan, big Star Trek fan, and he he says, "You'll never guess my favorite Star Trek episode." And I said, "Oh, you know, you're probably right, but I, I'm sitting on the edge of forever." And he goes, "Oh no, in the pale moonlight, you know, the inner light, whatever you know, I'm going to all the." Day. He says, "No, you're never going to yes. You're never going to yes. I said, "Okay." <laughs> I said, "What is it?" He goes, Tuvix. and I'm like, "Wait, you're you know, you're joking, right? You're you you know, that's not really your favorite
3: episode." No, my favorite, I love that episode.
1: And I'm like, and wait, we're trusting you to edit our book. I mean, <laughs> uh, I,
3: I'm, I think I'm a, I wasn't there again when that episode was done, but um, I I, I think. I I remember the end of it being just so brutal, where Jane White just kind of puts her foot down and says, "You know what? We're killing this two, and I'm yeah. getting my two people back." <laughs> yeah. And they do it, and it's like, "Holy shit!" Eight yeah. out and credits. <laughs> um, I thought it was great. There was there was an interview I think on one of the uh, Next Gen Blu-rays. It's a bad Rob Burnett is in here to confirm this, where I think Seth McFarlane was interviewing the writing staff, and he started talking about Tuvix, which wasn't, wasn't right. even a Next Gen episode. Right. As <laughs> like a great example of uh, a. a A a wonderful Star Trek story with uh, a really difficult moral question at the heart of it. I will say that by the time
1: that early era of Voyager is over and we're into, you know, later era where Brandon's running the show, there's a lot of the time stuff that he pioneered on Next Generation. You know, the cause and effects parallels Mm -hmm. that he was so brilliant at. It, It felt a little warmed over to me later on because I'd seen it so often, which felt so brilliant in next generation mm-hmm. felt like been there, done that in Voyager. I mean, what was it like? Because I mean, again, it's very easy to do a bottle show when you do a time show, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the, the production reasons for it, you know? Sure. Um, but, you know, and, and I'm sure you probably disagree with me and I am sure there are some great episodes. Like, this. I mean, there is one, I don't remember the title that I thought was very clever, which is the one where, um, the Voyagers destroyed, and for 20 years, Harry Kim and Chakotay are um, uh, trying to
3: save the ship from... Well, that was the 100th episode. Uh, yeah, I think Brandon and uh, Joe Minoski wrote that. That right?
1: was that was very clever. And a lot of this stuff is very Minoski-esque. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, Joe, who doesn't do a lot of interviews, who's not as well-known to the fan community, was really a guy who thought outside the box. And when he was on top of his game, he was brilliant, but then he would also come up with stuff like masks. Um <laughs> but uh, Joe's a really interesting guy and of course he worked on the first season of Discovery and then now is on the Orville and just a really brilliant guy who just thinks a totally different way than most people um, you know wh- wh- what, what, what? when you came in you know later what did you f- feel the challenges were on those later seasons of keeping Voyager fresh and compelling and uh, you know how much room was there to sort of duck right and fa- you know fake
3: left to, yeah, I don't, it's it was. It was for me. It was very challenging. I felt. I, I honestly. I could just feel like the exhaustion on on in everybody's bones. Right. I mean, right. I'm. Sure they've been doing this show for you know over six years, but by the time I got there, and uh, we had essentially a new showrunner in, in, in season seven, Ken Biller had taken over. Yeah, sure. And which is, uh, and Ken had pulled a script of mine out of the slush pile back when he was a story editor in I think season one and brought me in for the internship. And now he was running the show, and and he liked my ideas, and so I was was lucky to find a home there. But, yeah, they had been doing that show 26 a season for so long, and it was just, I I could just feel the weariness, particularly, you know, in the writer's room, um, and just trying to, so on the one hand, they had a new boss who had been there for a while, but you had other writers who had also been there a while who, like, okay, we were equals before, or... Writers together, and now you're my boss. What's that all about? So there was there was some weird dynamics going on there. Um, but yeah, for me, I was I was I, I, you know I was just happy to be on the show, man. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah of course. Right, well, this is
1: your dream. and we talked about this on the show before. You grew up as a fan of the original Star Trek. You wanted to work in film and TV. You work in news. You're doing all this stuff, and here you are working on Star Trek. It's a dream come true.
3: No, I absolutely. And I had I had. I had blown several opportunities before. (laughs) This was literally my third opportunity.
2: I'm not going to let that slip by. That, That was a good Guy Fleegman quote that you just <laughs> threw out. I'm not going <laughs> to let that go unnoticed. <laughs>
1: Lisa, what, 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 what was it like for you? I mean, you know, your first gig, you're working on Star Trek, and, you know... Oh, it was
0: fantastic. I mean, again, I I had, you know, come through the, the same way about somebody pulled my script out of the slush pile and invited me to come mm-hmm. pitch Deep Space Nine. And so, yeah, I was coming at it from the point of view of a fan also. Um, and I, I will never, ever forget... Um, After I had written the Deep Space Nine episode and considered that, you know, that was my big break, and I was so happy about that, and then I got a phone call from Jerry Taylor, who said, "Would you like to be on staff at Voyager?" And yeah, I am never going to forget forget that moment. You know, of I think my response was, "Really?" (laughs) Because (laughs) it was so hard to believe. But yeah, I was absolutely just, you know, considered. This to be you know the luckiest break in the world, and you know was terrified for most of my first season that I was going to blow it.
1: And you would never been in a writer's room before. I never,
0: well, I, I had done the same. Oh, rotation. right, of course, yeah, yeah. And so I was, I was familiar with the the workings of the writers' room. And again, I was really lucky that Jerry ran a very harmonious writers' room, and yeah. that nobody was allowed to you know crap all over everybody else's ideas. And very and
1: egalitarian. Yeah.
0: Very egalitarian, and it was never, uh, yeah. I mean, you were never allowed to to disparage other people's ideas. It was like, even if that doesn't work, how can we do it better? Yeah, What's well, a better idea? Yeah. Well,
1: what the audience doesn't understand is like, you know, sometimes it's very uh, segmented or, or, or regimented in a writer's room where if you're the executive producer, you get to talk and you're co-exec, you get to talk the second month, And if you're a story editor, you shut the fuck up. Yep. And, you know, look, that's not the best way to uh, ferment creativity, but some people operate that way. And uh, so... You know, it, you're lucky. I mean, to have that opportunity to be in a room where every voice is equal and everyone is entitled to, you know, express it. I mean, it's a much more, I think, successful way of, you know, you know, coming up with art than, than yeah. you know shutting and, and, people and down. And I know that
0: some story rooms, you know, they run on conflict. You know, and that it's everybody's trying to one up each other, or you know that. It's, it's like you're trying to win, <laughs> you know, that if you can tell, you know, somebody else, oh, that idea is crappy. Yeah. My idea is even better. <laughs> and again, that just was not allowed. There is
2: no conflict, even in the writer's room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, thank you, Gene. Um, what do you think of
2: Voyager, Gene? Uh, anything that brings uh, in uh, more uh, interest to the Star Trek brand, I, I'm completely in favor of. Do you have a favorite episode? Tuvix, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of favorite episodes, before we wrap things up, I want to ask you guys, it doesn't have to necessarily be an episode you wrote, but do you have a favorite episode of Voyager? Or should we say it can't be an episode you wrote? Or how about your favorite episode, maybe a favorite episode you did write?
0: (laughs) My favorite episode that I did write um, might be Innocence, which was with Tuvok being stuck on a planet with a bunch of kids. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it was... I really liked writing Vulcans, quite honestly. I mean, you know, the, the staff used to tease me that I was actually a Vulcan, because I, I tend to be kind of more reserved, and I wasn't, you know, always throwing out the ideas. And so getting to write an episode where, where we got to see Tuvok be a father, because we'd established that he had kids back right. on Vulcan, yes. um, that was just a really fun episode to write. And I thought that Tim Russ just knocked it out of the park.
1: See, I would never argue... That Voyager was better than the original series, but in this case, that episode is so much better than And the Children Shall Lead.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it, it's, no, it's a, it's a terrific episode. And Tim Russ is a guy who also we didn't really talk about this podcast. And, um, He did a great job as a Vulcan, you know, and those are hard roles to play. We've talked about many times on the podcast how difficult it is. I mean, just recently, and again, I don't want um, to say anything pro or con about Discovery. That's not our show. That's for Disco Nights. But there was an actress who played a Vulcan um, uh, admiral in Section 31 who is dreadful. Yeah, I mean, it's really, and and, and you see that on Enterprise, you see it on Next Gen. There's some really awful uh, Vulcan performances. Tim Russ... Who grew up loving Leonard? Yeah. Boy, he, hes really tell. good. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, he's really good.
0: You know, it's really easy to play a Vulcan as like robotic and just emotionless. Right.
2: But that's not a Vulcan.
0: That is not a Vulcan. A Vulcan right. is constantly repressing their emotions, and exactly. the trick is to let the audience see what you're repressing. It's a
1: subtle difference, but boy, if you don't get it, it's there. It's okay. night and day. Yeah. So, uh, Darren, do you have a favorite Voyager?
2: Um, I, you know, because I, I, I was involved with it to some extent. I, I, I love Caretaker.
3: Now, at the farthest reaches of the galaxy, the time has come to battle new
2: alien threats and face the great unknown mysteries of the universe.
3: Red alert!
0: There's
3: a life form here. Harris to Janeway. No! will be they just Get down! Firing photons. No! <laughs>
2: A new legacy of bold adventures is ready to launch. Somewhere along this journey,
3: we'll find a way back. Mr. Paris,
0: set a course for home.
2: Star Trek Voyager. And I, yeah. I remember the um, you know the cast and crew screening, and I was I was in a hundred percent. Right. And I, I had a great time with that, yeah. and you know I, I I enjoyed it through its run, but uh, you, you know you can't can't match your first.
0: I, <laughs> I I think that of the episodes that I did not write, I think the pilot is my favorite mm-hmm. as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, and
1: that made our top fifty There were a couple of Voyager episodes that made our yeah. top fifty back. Uh, we did uh, at the in the new year, um, which is still available for download. Is the three part uh, our, our our top fifty one episodes of Star Trek right. of all time? Uh, it Was supposed to be a two parter, became a three parter. Right. And six full hours of enjoyment. But you know, Voyager is 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 well represented in a couple episodes, uh, including Caretaker. Um,
3: yeah, Michael, what about you? Uh, I'm I'm gonna. Steel, uh, Stacey Abrams uh, uh, episode which uh, Not Michelle Abrams <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
3: Shattered which was a season seven mm. episode teleplay written by Mike Taylor who I shared story credit with all I had ever written well I'd written I had come up with the idea for the episode I was a freelancer and I remember waking up from a nap and I had the, an idea where like Jane Wade was on the Turbo Left, and every deck it was like a different season of the show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, well, maybe that's something." And so I wrote it up, pitched it, sold it, and they gave it to Mike Taylor to write. And He's it was such a, an interesting guy, Mike, a
1: great writer, and terrific just, writer. Just a really fascinating
3: story that guy. And what was so wonderful about like there were even things in the pitch that ended up in which is very rare, yeah. particularly as a freelancer, like mm-hmm. scenes ending up in the actual finished episode, like having Seska come back. And, and it was kind of a, a tour of like all seven seasons mm-hmm. of, of the show, and it was kind of like the perfect time to do that episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to rewatch it. I haven't seen it. i got to watch this one. Um, <laughs> it sounds good. <laughs> uh, uh, Stacey Abrams, big yeah, fan apparently. I Stacey,
1: it's good enough for Stacey. It's good enough for me. Uh,
3: but Mike Taylor did a dynamite job with that, and I was so jealous I didn't get to write it. I was mm-hmm. like, oh. Like, well, but he did a much of, better job than I would speaking
2: have. Speaking of doing a dynamite job, I think both you guys uh, did a great job on this podcast. Oh, oh, well, they always do. That's why we keep inviting the back. But we've never, they... we've never combined their strengths uh, together. Two tastes <laughs> that taste great together. Chocolate <laughs> and peanut butter. So there you go. It's because well, you guys pay so well. Yeah, right. Well, exactly. Yeah. We pay double than we paid the other guys. So Twice nothing is still nothing. Uh, but it is the only love money can buy. And
1: it so, is equal pay for equal work
2: this is true that's right
1: that's right <laughs> well I want to thank you guys thank you uh, Lisa thank you Michael and of course thank you Darren for uh, joining us for Trek Trexperts and if you're a fan of this podcast you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like 430 Movie every Friday in which a group of writer and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies I'll talk about us in the second person and uh, <laughs> Disco Nights the ultimate Star Trek Discovery podcast available Sundays if you like listening to Lisa she's been on it a lot lately uh, with Chase uh, Masterson the host and um, And of course, best movies never made a great new podcast, which is every other Monday about movies that never saw the light of a projector bulb that were developed or, um, you know, usually it's a director coming on to talk about the one that got away. They've had great people on like Fred Decker from your compatriot from Enterprise and Adam Rifkin was on recently and um, just some some great, great guests. So I, I really am a fan of that podcast. The guys are doing a great job. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And uh, you can follow us on social at uh, Twitter at Inglorious Trek or on Instagram at Inglorious Trek Experts. On Facebook, you can find us at Inglorious Trek. And. Um I would be remiss if I didn't give a very special shout out to uh, the brilliant Bill uh, who hey, hey, this Ritter, is Chase Masters and host of Disco so Nights, inviting you to join us every Sunday as the disco there, party like Artie, continues with our fabulous guests, like us, and, uh, like us, not like you. Because and um, you are audience, she's taking so we we'll see seriously. you here no next flipping. Sunday night. Right. Bring your and, disco And uh, thank you to everyone here at Electric Surge for making the show possible, and you, the audience, for listening in droves. Uh, I I'm so happy every time I think we have had enough of the show, I see the ratings go up and decide, okay, well, we can do some more. <laughs> so, um, so until uh, next Saturday, uh, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course, shh, engage.